Welcome to the Policy Memo, a policy podcast from the perspective of three Black women that have worked at policy at varying levels of government. I'm Shauna, your health policy nerd, and I'll be running down the policy issues and headlines during each episode. I'm Portia, registered nurse turned public health practitioner turned health services research PhD student. And I'm Tamika, passionate about all things equity and policy. We are still running through some district court cases and also Supreme Court cases. Last episode, we talked about COVID and the challenges around mask mandates, vaccines, eviction moratorium. We also looked at one of the most recent challenges to the ACA and then looked at education and our First Amendment rights. And is free speech really that free when you are a public school student and you are using social media, which Social media ain't in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court said that your First Amendment right can be violated if you are not on school property and you are speaking freely. So, you know, other rights were being violated. We, we see voting, right? ACA is on the chopping block always, and these voting rights are seemingly always on the chopping block as well. Um, you know, last year was an election year and we saw a lot of issues when it came to mail-in ballots. We saw issues related to COVID, um, you know, with voting and not being able to vote and things like that. And so we're going to look at a couple voting rights cases that were brought to the forefront last year in 2020. And we'll talk about what the Supreme Court said about these election issues and then also some state courts as well. So just a little bit of recap knowledge-based information. Voting rights, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is considered one of the single most important federal statutes that protects the right to vote. The Voting Rights Act contains a number of important provisions but what we're going to look at in our, our discussion is around section two of the act and it continues to have the greatest impact and section two is essentially an enforcement of the 15th amendment guarantee that the right to vote cannot be abridged on account of our race color or previous condition of servitude that's what the 15th amendment said and section two allows voters to seek judicial relief if they believe that a state or local government has denied or limited their voting rights on the basis of their race, color, or membership in a language minority group. Those are the words from section two and the previous words from the 15th amendment. So Arizona was one, one of the most recent uh, challenges to the Voting Rights Act where Bronovich uh, brought a case, um, that's the attorney general, brought a case against the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. Um, and they brought this case. And the issue is that Arizona had two methods of voting, in-person voting at a precinct or voting center or early voting, right? Most places have that. Um, and in early voting, you receive your ballot by mail, and then you either mail the ballot back or you deliver the ballot to a designated drop-off place. And so Arizona law permits each county to choose a vote center or a precinct 
based system for in-person voting. So the issue came up because after election day, the election officials, um, they were looked at all the provisional ballots and the voter identity, and they wanted to suppress uh, several votes and they discarded actually several ballots in its entirety because they felt as though the, the voters were out of precinct because they mailed their ballots back in maybe they brought their ballots back into locations that maybe weren't in their community. So the DNC challenged this out of precinct policy and said it violated section two of the Voting Rights Act because it adversely and disparately affected Arizona's Native Americans, Hispanic and African American citizens. What are y'all thoughts? Can I bring my ballot back anywhere I want? and drop it off anywhere I want when the rules don't say that I need to drop it off in my specific community. Is Arizona foul for doing this? Arizona definitely is foul for doing this. Um, <laughs> okay. So this is so messy. So this is so messy for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if it does not explicitly state that the ballot needs to be dropped off within your respective county, then it should right. just be, okay, I live in the state, it should be any county, right? Um, so that shouldn't, that shouldn't matter. Um, and two, you know, this is kind of just like, I'm not surprised because I think we, we all saw this coming after the election um, with Arizona trying to um, restrict, uh, voting access. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see that of course, not just with Arizona, but 17 other States that have enacted, um, restrictive, um, voting rights legislation. What you think Tamika? Yeah. <laughs> the level of petty. Listen, last year we had a historic election in the middle of an unprecedented event. Um, during the pandemic, we saw a turnout from, um, especially people of color that we haven't mm -hmm. seen in a very long time or if ever, right? So now the people that are in power, right? Because anytime the structures are getting shaken up, they have to retaliate and do something about it. Um, especially in Arizona, there what I think they also did like a recount of fraud. There was no fraud in Arizona. Well, I feel what, like Arizona um, is still counting. Right. <laughs> community effort and through um, you know different communities getting together and making it happen, taking people to vote and making sure that those individuals that could not be taken to vote was able to mail in those ballots. Yes. We saw that their voice was counted and their voice was heard. So, I mean, this whole issue with Arizona is really to limit and to restrict um, the voices of the Native American population there and to make sure that they don't see a historic turnout like they did last year with, um, you know, for people of color. I'm just going to right. call a spade a spade. That's really what all these laws, and I know we're going to get into more into cases, are really about is to restrict the voting rights of people of color because right. of the historic turnout that we saw last year. And I'm gonna put it out there, Republicans cannot win, <laughs> cannot win just off of, let's say my majority vote, right? Because they cater to a certain demographic where 
Democrats, you will say, cater more to whether I'm now I'm not arguing whether who's right, who's wrong. I'm just saying historically how it's been going. Um, Democrats mostly cater to um, people of color and try to bring in more, um, I guess, different populations, different ethnicities into the voting base in order mm -hmm. to win, right? And so the Republicans and these Republican states are like, no, we need to hold power. And anytime power is threatened, we're going to see policies and laws to come, uh, you know, to um, basically keep right powers and structures in place. That is history of America. So we're going to see these challenges, but um, no, if they didn't specifically well, say that they had to drop it off in a certain place, then what is the issue? I, you know, it's not, so, I don't think that's the issue, nor do I think that it should specifically say you have to drop it off in a certain place. So <laughs> <laughs> I know I just said a lot. So, yeah. Well, so like you said, you know, it's a lot, it was a lot of minority and indigenous groups right that use this drop-off um voted ballots so what arizona did put in place um was a law that said you can't do that you can't use these drop-offs you can't um it's not permissible and unfortunately all the supreme court agreed um in a six again opinion, in a six three opinion um, Justice Alito rejected the challenges and said that it was not a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and it was not a 15th Amendment violation. Um, and so they found that Arizona, Arizona's out-of-precinct policy does not violate Section 2, and the uh, the new law that Arizona had put in place was not a racially was not enacted for racially discriminatory purposes. They right. agree with this. <laughs> However, mean, like historically, what we've seen is that the the groups that use the out of precinct reporting is the minority groups in Arizona, which but Arizona the Supreme. Knows. Mm -hmm. right. Exactly. Which, according to the Supreme Court, the was not racially discriminatory. Um, and when you look at racial discrimination and when you look at um, like a constitutional basis for racially discriminating, um, the rule says that it has to be facially like that's the term they use facially discriminate discriminatory. And so I think what is going on in the analysis here. Um, which nothing in 2021, 2022, 2020, anything is ever going to be facially discriminatory anymore, right? Because we know how to write rules and laws where it's not going to say African-Americans cannot, Mexican-Americans exactly. cannot. And so it will never pass the, faci the facially, um, and it's going to be hard to say this, facially, racially discriminatory purpose because we are never going to put those languages on paper like we did in the 50s the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, also because we don't need to, right? Because, right. Um, because, <laughs> because, because of where- Because now we have, um, because, can create zip code and communities and- Gerrymandering. And right, gerrymandering. Where, and, exactly. And, and racial and ethnic minority groups tend to, um, you know, co-locate. So they tend to live in um, neighborhoods where, you know, other racial and ethnic minority groups are also located. And the reality of it is, is that these states know that, right? That's the same reason why that issue with gerrymandering, I think it was what, North Carolina? 
mm-hmm. South Carolina, where they were redistricting and they were saying that it was not um, racially motivated, but they know who lives where, right? Right. Um, so you use, you know, they're using the census to their, to their advantage, right? To be able to um, be discriminatory. Listen, Biden, last episode, what was it? The eviction moratorium mm-hmm. um, right now. It's like, I don't know if he sleep at the wheel and does it understand the I don't uh, think the, he, ur- the sense of urgency even, around voting rights, but he's not even driving. He needs so to get there's that. The, you got to get this for the people act passed. The and the John Lewis voter, voting rights right. exactly act passed um, because the, the clock is really ticking. But also, um, I think Shauna said this last episode as well. This is why voting matters, right? Because we hear a lot of times that our votes don't count or this doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to electing a president, this is why voting matters. If your votes didn't count, why would they try so hard (laughs) to throw it out or to restrict you, you, right? That you can't can't (laughs) vote. But I mean... During the Trump administration, how many um, Supreme Court picks did was he able to get? You know, uh, so again, this is why voting matters, and um, you need to get out and vote and do everything that you can to preserve that power that you do have. That's one of the powers we have in this nation um, that others are really dying for, but you know, and that our forefathers died for. You know, yes. so uh, it's it's it matters. Yes, ma'am. It sure does. It sure does. Um, Because you're right. You know, you mentioned um, you mentioned how many appointees to the Supreme Court Trump did. And, um, you know, Biden does have an opportunity to to make some changes to the Supreme Court soon. Um, But the district courts also matter. Right. And our state Supreme Courts also matter. Absolutely. Some some state um, cases in the last episode. And we have another state case in New Mexico where it went to the New Mexico Supreme Court, a voting rights case, similar situation where, not really similar situation. So this was again, because of COVID, um, 27 county clerks in New Mexico, they filed an emergency request to compel the Secretary of State to mail ballots to registered voters in New Mexico during the pandemic. Right. So the clerk said you need to mail these ballots, um, Mr. or Miss Secretary of State, um, to help with the election process, et cetera. Um, and they wanted, you know, to have ease of process. They wanted to make their lives easier. And they claimed that there was no remedy available at law and therefore. Um, you know, they wanted the court to help them out because the secretary of state was like, no, I'm not mailing these ballots to um, people, registered voters because of COVID. They need to come out and vote like we always do. Um, You know, and these petitioners, they wanted to do away with in-person voting and also use mail-in ballots only um, and order polling places to not operate, deliver ballots to people, um, to help with the process. So you do have some states that I think um, are more equipped, right? To mm-hmm. be able to hand, handle like mail-in ballots in terms of the, their, the capacity that they typically get within a voting cycle, right? So, okay. um, so I can get that in terms of, 
you know, do you have the personnel as all the, mm. the staff trained to be able to do what you need to do to make sure you can count all the, you know, all the ballots or what have you. Um, but at the same time, this is an unprecedented time. It's a pandemic. Right. And so I think that you need to be able to pivot. Um, and so for, for most states anyway, I believe they did both, right? There were some yeah. states that of course were pushing um, and got more mail-in ballots than in person, which we you know kind of expected because of the pandemic. Um, I see the case for having both, right? As long as, um, you know, there's, of course, it's safe, social distancing, distancing, mask wearing, all of that. Um, but in general, I feel like there should have always been an option to do mail-in ballot just because of, because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't think, um, I mean, I understand it's a pandemic. You want to limit contacts, which essentially will limit disease spread, but I don't think there was a reason to do away with in-person voting either. I know for myself, I chose not to mail in my vote because it was just something about going to the polling station, voting and making sure my vote counted um, that sat well with me. I didn't mm -hmm. want to do a mail-in vote. So I think having both options, and I think most states had both options and there, that was the problem, right? Is that right. typically people did go and do voting in person, right? But because of the pandemic, a lot of people chose to do the mail-in vote and hence that's where a lot of these states are now trying to change the rules surrounding mail-in voting um, because they saw an increase in the amount of mail-in ballots that they received. So yeah, I think it's necessary to do both. And I think there are people that are, want to do both, right? So um, yeah. Yep, and you're right. Um, the court agreed with both of y'all, but um, specifically Tamika, it said that you need to do both. Um, so the court ordered the Secretary of State to mail all registered voters, the absentee ballot, and then it also ordered in-person voting to proceed as well in accordance with local you know, public health guidelines. But a Can second, I make a little, one, yeah, go. one clarification really quick? So was the issue that the state did not want to mail the votes to them. Okay, so it wasn't an issue of them doing mail-in votes, but they didn't feel like they need to mail it to they all the registered like voters. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, mm -hmm. I see. Okay, but no, I had to do a little search really quick because when Portia said pivot, I um this is so a segue, but I I googled the most used words of 2020. Did you really? Like, Unprecedented is one. Listen, <laughs> no, that's on Pivot is right above it. Pivot is number six. <laughs> Precedent is number seven. I was like, if I hear Pivot, it's not number time. one. Number one is COVID, girl. Number one. Is COVID. Well, that makes sense. So that's number yeah. one is COVID, and number two is social distancing. Um, number three is we're all in this together. <laughs> we're in innovative times. You got to pivot. You got to be able to pivot. Number four is out of abundance of caution. Number five is in these uncertain times, Portia. <laughs> pivot it's unprecedented times it's unprecedented. I to say unprecedented, unprecedented is next synonym <laughs> and then karen lord poor karen karen oh boy and then sus as in suspicious and then i know right which i'm like really how is that right oh well there Shout out to new york i guess <laughs> sus. <laughs> <laughs> so i was like am i here pivot one more freaking time i have never 
pivot more in my life than in the last 18 months. Because people need to pivot. They need to Right. I, I mean, I agree, Portia. You got to be my flexible. Like, and I was trying to also like segue to our next topic and figure out how I would use pivot. Let's pivot. So we're going to pivot to XYZ. <laughs> let's pivot. So we are, you know, we're on our justice topics this, um, this go round. And so we talked about voting rights and um, now we can look at juvenile justice. And man, this case, I was, this case really. Um, it's a shocker. Yes. It really hurt me deep inside because um. So it's Jones v. Mississippi, and it's a case in which um, there was a young man. Well, he was a young man at the time. He was 15 years old, 15, and he was convicted of stabbing his grandfather um, in 2004. And he brought his case, I guess he, you know, appealing his conviction and he argued that there had been two recent Supreme Court decisions about mandatory life sentencing without parole decisions for juveniles. Um, one was in 2012 and an, another one was in 2016. And in the 2016 case, the judge, the judge who sentenced him, he wanted him to find that he was incapable of rehabilitation before imposing the life without parole. And I'm just thinking, you know, outside of the case, just thinking about 15 years old and being sentenced to life without parole, right? And so this young man brought the case because he wanted that rehabilitation instead of, and saying that he was incapable of rehabilitation before they sentenced him to that. Um, I guess we can just talk about that because I don't, I don't want to get into what the court said. Um, Tamika, I think with this case, we should get into what the court said first. Okay, we'll get into yeah. what the court said. Okay, well, so the court in a 6-3 decision, the justices disagreed. They disagreed and they held that it was enough that the judge considered his youth in sentencing him, that they the judge did not need to consider whether he was incapable of rehabilitation and um the Eighth Amendment does not require that um, a juvenile is permanently incorrigible before imposing a sentence of life without parole. And man, that hurt me. Like, I know he murdered his grandfather. He stabbed his grandfather. But the fact that what we are saying moving forward is that we are not going to um, consider rehabilitation before we impose these sentences well so first things first um if you know anything about the criminal justice system and the prison system is there is no such thing as they don't do rehabilitation right like that's not their ministry unfortunately and that's really why for me I'm not I'm not really a fan of prisons and the whole entire prison industrial complex and, you know, especially having worked in one as a nurse, um, mm -hmm. it's really, you know, a way to be able to, uh, you know, make money off of the backs of, you know, bodies and cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, it's not, well, this was Mississippi. Yeah. 
not surprising because of where this case was, um, just knowing their history of uh, harsh sentences, especially for juvenile um, offenders. But I think it is, it's just, it's crazy. But this is Mississippi, but the Supreme Court also agreed. Like it went all the way to the Supreme Court as well. And Justice Kavanaugh, you know, we know Justice Kavanaugh with his youth issues, right? (laughs) Um, Justice Kavanaugh explained that the previous decisions really don't um, have an impact on this and that the Miller case, all it required is that uh, the, the judge, the sentencer, consider youth as a mitigating factor when deciding whether to impose a life sentence, but um, his life without parole would still um, would still continue. Yeah, no surprise for me. Right. It, it was a little surprising because they went surprising. against precedent. Exactly. Um, the, I'm just going to put it out there. The United States is the only industrialized nation that um, makes this an option for children. They're, they're the only one that, that does this. <laughs> so no surprise what there. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate a little bit for our- Right, our- well, sentence kids to life without parole or was, uh, was sentencing kids okay. to the death penalty, things like that. There are other okay. states, not states, but there are other nations and industrialized nations such as in Europe um, that will sentence kids 10 years, 20 years with the, right? Because okay. we know that evidence was brought basically saying that a minor or a youth brain is not fully developed, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to take that into considera- consideration when dealing sentences. And so th- this makes it huge because it, it was a series of court cases that was brought in front of the Supreme Court that basically ruled that it was unconstitutional to have a juvenile serve a cap, well, be given a capital sentence, which means mm-hmm. the death penalty, um, or to serve a term life in prison without um, parole and to take in consider those mitigating factors of his age, how mature he was, and the factor that the adolescent brain is not fully developed. And mm-hmm. so by those Supreme Court um, courts a cases set in precedent, a lot of juvenile offenders were able to go back and plead their case and be issued. Right new sentence new sentence based on the guidelines and the opinions of the Supreme Court. So what this basically does is it it takes us like 10 steps back, right? They totally went against precedent that was set in this case and decided that um, no, that that should just be a mitigating factor and that age really doesn't matter essentially and that a juvenile can be can serve the sentence of life without parole. Like basically saying there is no rehabilitation for a juvenile. And yes, we know that the American system is not really based on rehabilitation anyway, but when it comes to juvenile offenders, um, it's quite different because of the factual basis that the adolescent brain is not fully developed. So again, they went against precedent when it came to this. They went against um, everything that the previous Supreme Courts have, judges have ruled when it came to this and nobody was expecting this case to go this way. So what does it mean? Coming up for future juvenile offenders, um, especially in the terms of homicide, right? So those that commit murder, um, they can be sentenced to life without parole, which I think takes the juvenile justice movement 20 years back, 30 years back, 40 years back, right? 
when we were able to, we, I mean, I'm not necessarily part of the juvenile justice movement, but I'm a bleeding heart when it comes to this. Um, It's one of my interests. But when we made so much progress on allowing, um, you know, individuals that commit crimes at such a young age to have some type of light at the end of the tunnel to be able to um, be reformed or rehabilitated or serve 20 years and able to come out and to still have a life. And why? Because at 14, 15, 13, you're a totally different person than when you're 30, 35, 40. And to say that a 15 year old cannot learn or grow or, you know, potentially, I don't know, change their life at all because of something that they did at 15, to me, is just, it's sad. It's really sad and disheartening and sets another precedent for courts to be able to put this sentence on the table. Um, And so I was really disheartened by this. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts around this issue and I hear about a lot of cases and a lot of times there are other mitigating factors such as the type of life that they live, maybe sexual abuse. I mean, sexual abuse um, cases, what does that mean for those who maybe feared for their life and decided to decided to kill their abusers or was defending themselves, which led to murder. I mean, I just felt this, this really bothered me. I'm just going to put it out like that. And it really took the movement, I would say 10 years or 20 years back. And no one expected the ruling on this case was going to go this way because of previous precedents that was set when it came to um, juvenile justice sentencing guidelines. So yeah, I no, think, I agree. Oh, go. go ahead. Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I think this, just in terms of the voting, right, six-three decision um, by the Supreme Court, it does signal that there is clearly a change, right? Because we know, of course, the Supreme Court has grown more conservative, right? Um, particularly after um, the Trump appointees have um, taken their seats, and so this to me kind of brings up the issue and the question of, you know, expanding the Supreme Court justices and how many seats there are. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that conversation definitely should be back in back on the table with something like this. Yeah, and I'm looking at the three, <laughs> you know who the three are, um, exactly. Sotomayor, Kagan, mm-hmm. and Breyer. Um, and so those are our, I would say, you know, our, our three liberal Breyer. You right, know, right down party lines. Yeah, exactly. Breyer, he falls um, in the middle from time to time. But, you know, Kagan and Sotomayor, Sotomayor, like, you know, being in the Bronx, she has seen these cases. And mm-hmm. so I, I know she had a soft heart for this. Um, but it, it's definitely very telling because I, I also yeah. did not expect um it to move in the direction that it did, as well as, you know, he was convicted in, in 2004, right? And then the other two cases right. were 2012 and 2016. So I assumed that the petition um, was filed immediately after that 2016 case um, to see if this could get overturned, right? Because it, it does take about three three to five years for something to go from local all the way to the Supreme Court. And so this was promising. And for them to have ruled in the way that they did, 
um, also tells like it, it's also very telling about other things that they could potentially overcome. Right. Abortion. Absolutely. Exactly. Yep. And this is why this case is really scary because again, the precedence was set and for Justice Brett Kavanaugh to basically reject the precedence and the rulings of the past Supreme Court um, and basically come with their interpretation of the Eighth Amendment, um, it was surprising. It was really surprising. And that kind of states that a lot of things that we think because of precedents are, might go one way, mm-hmm. not with this court. Yeah, mm-hmm. not exactly. with this court. This is the outcome of playing the long game. That's what at the end the of the day. The Republicans do. <laughs> I will give them that. They always play the long game. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, as we're thinking about precedent, you know, the next case isn't necessarily about precedent, but it's also another one where the court was sort of close to being split um, with this decision. And we, we've heard talks, right, about maybe Biden needs to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court so that we can have more fair and um, less bipartisan discussion and things like that. And this one, um, you know, was a 5-4 decision where, you know, um, well, it, it, it wasn't necessarily positive, but it's the, the Penn um, East Pipeline versus New Jersey. And this case is an environmental justice case where the court looked at the Natural Gas Act, which delegates to the um, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission Um, the authority to exercise eminent domain power to condemn land in which a state claims an interest and that um, it abrogates state sovereign immunity in some cases. So pretty much what all of that says in in plain language is that with this Penn East pipeline case, um, private, uh, the Natural Gas Act says that private companies uh, can exercise the federal government's power to take property by eminent domain, subject to certain jurisdictional requirements. And so Penn East uh, Pipeline, they obtained federal government approval to build this pipeline through Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And then they sued the natural gas, um, they sued under the Natural Gas Act to gain access to the properties that were uh, along the pipeline route. of which the state of New Jersey owned 42 of those properties. And so the state of New Jersey, they sought to dismiss Penn East lawsuit for lack of jurisdiction um, based on saying that, hey, we, New Jersey, we own this land because we have immunity, we are sovereign and we're separate and you don't have jurisdiction to be able to come and sue to take this land under the Natural Gas Act. And the question here is, does that Natural Gas Act delegate the federal government eminent domain power um, and take away a state sovereign immunity? Um, And generally, you know, states are immune from lawsuits. We know that, right? States are generally immune from lawsuits unless they have consented or unless Congress has abrogated their immunity. And in this case, uh, they rule that... um, the power carries with it the ability. And so 
Penn East um, won in this particular case and New Jersey lost their sovereign immunity um, and the, the land was able to be taken. Any thoughts about that? So I would say that's a slippery slope. I, yes, very slippery slope. Um, I, again, not something that I thought would have ruled in the favor of a private company, right? Saying that essentially they supersede the sovereignty of a state because we know how the constitution spells out states' rights and basically what their domain and their powers are. But essentially for them to be able to claim intimate domain and exercising a federal power to then build something that's part of that essentially will, will make them money, right? Because it's, it's going to the private companies. So it's not really to benefit everyone, you know, I would say. And for them to use that or exercise that power to um, supersede a state's sovereignty and for the Supreme Court to rule in their favor, that's, um, that's a little scary. I think that that's scary. Um, I yeah. mean, what's next? Would a private company be allowed to let's say, build a wall. <laughs> they may. Right. And go so ahead. There is that guy that did build the wall and now he's um, going bankrupt and he wants more money. No, there is that guy okay. at a I... private company and he did get grants. Um, he got millions of dollars in grant money from the Trump administration. I was um, about to say, was it grants or private donations? Because I did hear. Both. Oh, okay. Yes, the same person. But, you know, essentially what the Supreme Court said, uh, Chief Justice Roberts essentially said that hey, this Natural Gas Act says that in the event that we are trying to build infrastructure and build a nationwide system, yeah, eminent domain. Um, and so I, I guess if you're thinking about what you said about the wall, if we are attempting to secure the infrastructure, that, that they, could, they could rule in that favor because that's essentially what they said here. It's all about building a nationwide system and securing the infrastructure of the United States. Interesting. So, <laughs> just, just. Uh, this, I mean, it's interesting that it goes, I mean, I guess when my first initial thoughts when I think of, okay, securing the infrastructure, it's like, okay, roadways, highways, you know, interstates and whatnot. But my initial thoughts that this is, that something like a pipeline is covered under that particularly with um, some of the environmental issues that typically are associated with pipelines, um, you know, and serving, you know, who's going to be impacted locally, right, in terms of different communities that may be impacted by this. Um, I, I'm surprised, actually, that, it, that there wasn't even a conversation, right? Like, to me, this is something that probably should have been brought to the table to say, okay, hey, Yes, New Jersey, you own, you know, these areas, but is there an actual, besides you owning it, what other concerns are there that this pipeline cannot be right. placed here? Well, you know no, what I mean? It, it, it was brought to the table. It was years and years of argument and contention. And New Jersey was like, we own this land, you can't take it. And then this private company decided to sue the state of New Jersey, which um, as we do know, you really can't enjoin the states um, because of the eminent domain rule. And the Supreme Court was like, F that rule. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, to so go with what Portia was saying too, though, the reason why I think this is an environmental justice issue is that whose houses are they going to take, right? Who, where are they going to run this pipeline through? It's not going to be in a majority upper class, um, let's say, to be honest, majority white um, neighborhood, but it's going to be in maybe working lower class majority um black and brown faces and houses that they're going to run a pipeline through and use this ruling to say yeah we can take your house like and there's nothing that you can do about it um not only that but for any other houses that are in that area you know you can see decreased property values you can suffer again from a host of issues relating to this pipeline um, that we already know already affect the majority black and brown individuals, right? We know that our houses aren't necessarily assessed for their real worth because of the color of our skin. So having something like a pipeline be in that area as well will also bring down property value or housing value. But we know that again, they're, they're not gonna do a plan to run through a majority wealthy area. It's going to be right. through those poorer um, areas, which are in some instances are majority black and brown faces right. and black and brown families. So Portia, to your yeah. point, so the board chair for Penn East Pipeline, he said, um, you know, your point about, like, I didn't realize pipelines was about infrastructure. He said, and I quote, it protects consumers who rely on infrastructure projects found to be in the public benefit after thorough scientific and environmental reviews from being denied access to much needed energy by narrow state public interests. And then he also went on to say that Penn East understood that New Jersey brought this case for political purposes, but the energy crisis is more important to our vital way of living. So for them, their argument was more so the energy crisis and needing to move this pipeline forward because of the energy crisis. Right, and not for economic gain. Not for- Right, I was about to say, uh, no. <laughs> but you know, uh, Tamika, so Justice, um, I, I was very surprised the dissent, um, Justice Amy Coney um, Barrett was the dissent. Um, and she said that, yes, yes, she was. And she said the 11th Amendment guaranteed the state's sovereign immunity and it should bar Penn East from suing to seize the land. And she said private parties cannot sue non-consenting states. So she went with the argument that we're, you know, we're going with. Right. Um, and then she also said that it's inconsistent with the Constitution. And the Constitution tells us that private parties can't sue states. And so... Um, you know, for them to have been even been able to move forward um, is interesting. And she said, the flaw in this logic is glaring. Eminent domain belongs to the United States, not to Penn East. And the United States is free to take New Jersey's property, not East. Again, slippery slope. So that's slope. just, yeah. Right, because that's what the Gas Act, the Natural Gas Act was really more so about saying the federal government is delegating this power and the federal government can take your land, not a private entity, but they decided to use it in their favor. And it would be great to see who their lawyers are and then what uh, what lobbying organizations they work for. Mm -hmm. And they probably will not be the last. Someone else is gonna come That's right what behind I was them say, and try this slow. tactic. Right. 
but looking at you know Penn East and condemnation of the New Jersey land to build that pipeline, you know, just wrapping it up, we also saw another hot topic, another thing when we look at the ways that the court is leaning in a direction that again is unprecedented for another one of those vocabulary words of 2020 and 2021, looking at could the court be leaning in another direction to break precedent and not move in line with previous cases is the issue of abortion and reproductive justice. And while there were no challenges before the Supreme Court thus far um, with abortion rights, there were some other things um, with reproductive justice. There were three abortion cases that were very timely this past year that we want to get into. And the first one was in Ohio. And the case is preterm Cleveland et al. versus McLeod. And it was uh, the Court of Appeals for the Sixth, Sixth Circuit. And the issue was that uh, the plaintiffs, um, preterm, it's like the name of their facility, preterm labor, blah, 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 of Cleveland. They are a uh, medical, they were four medical service providers and one doctor who provide abortions in Ohio. And the defendant was the state of Ohio, obviously, represented by the attorney general. And they sued the four medical clinics and the doctor. They sued the state of Ohio, raising a challenge to um, House Bill 214, the anti-discrimination law of Ohio which prohibits a doctor from performing an abortion with the knowledge that the woman's reason for aborting her pregnancy is that her fetus has Down syndrome and she does not want a child with Down syndrome. And so they sought a de um, declaratory judgment, and I'll explain what that is in a second. They sought a declaratory judgment that HB um, 214 is facially unconstitutional and an injunction to stop the state from enforcing it. And what a uh, declaratory judgment does, it pretty much says like, we're just going to rule on the substantive nature of that law and we don't need to hear any arguments or anything like that. So they, they just want it done immediately. And so the Court of Appeals refused to block the implementation of the statute that makes it a crime for a doctor to perform an abortion if the doctor is aware that the pregnant woman is seeking the abortion. Um, the court found that the state does have a legitimate reason for the law. Um, so what do y'all think? Like, are, are they ridiculous in trying to say that we want this house bill gone because we don't want women who may fear or may, not fear, excuse me, may think that their child has, uh, the fetus has Down syndrome to abort the child. Is it unconstitutional to, um, to have that law in place or to enforce that law. They want to block the statute. So nothing to do with the timing of the abortion. I was about to All say about the Down syndrome. I guess because my, my position is that it doesn't really matter what the reason is as long as- My position as, is mind your business. Yeah, it <laughs> right? doesn't Surprise matter what me. the reason is as long as it's with, um, you know, within the time frame that's appropriate for a woman to actually have an abortion. Um, but whether or not the doctor knows that your reason 
it's a slippery slope of like, okay, well, the, the doctor doesn't agree with your reason. It has nothing to do with Down syndrome. It's just, you know, you don't, you don't want the support. There's no protection against any other reason besides the Down syndrome, right? So then are we going to pile on and then it be, you know, some other condition or some other, other reason that has nothing to do with whether or not the woman is actually within her right in terms of right. gestational age? Well, the law is still standing. So Ohio said, the court of appeals said, you know, they're not going to block the implementation. So unfortunately, so now in Ohio, a doctor cannot perform an abortion knowing that the woman's reason is that the fetus has Down syndrome. Okay. So then the woman is going to say, that's not my reason. It's for another reason. (laughs) I I mean, I don't. How are they going to prove that that is the sole reason? Reason. So I guess, so well, there's there could be so devil's advocate here. So let's say Portia is my my nurse practitioner. I'm going to get my checkups. We we do the genetic test, and um, the markers for Down syndrome come back. And I'm like, hey, Portia, um, doctor nurse Portia, I need you to prescribe me the abortion pill. Now, Portia, right, but knows. I mean, right, but I can say I'm not financially fit to have a child right now or I'm not financially fit to take care of a child with a disability is not necessarily the disability but it could be my finances Finances, how are you going to prove that that is the sole reason behind a woman seeking that abortion I don't I mean you're just going to say well before she was ready to have a baby and now she wasn't because you don't even know her mind frame or what she was thinking about before she went into that visit. It could be the whole, like no, the whole time she was thinking inter- that, I, you, you, have you know. Relation, and I'm not saying I agree with the statute at all, but like you have an intimate relationship with your OB. Like that's- No, not always. I was just say, I don't want to relationship with my OB. I think, I, I think to uh, say- so when, I you, think, when y'all are pre- with, when you're in pregnancy, that's an intimate relationship. Like. Well, I was about to say, at what time do you have a genetic test? Like, how many months? I've um, never had a child before, so I'm not sure. You have how many the genetic months? test pretty early, um, month one, two. You have the genetic right, test. Right, so you don't really early. necessarily have an intimate relationship with your OB in month one. You don't, I mean, there could be a lot of factors going on in your head when you go to your visit or you go to your follow-ups. I mean, so I don't think it's necessarily they would know just be, I mean, and I, I also, I used to work in the medical office. And what I would say is that doctors see a lot of patients. Um, if you get a good one, yes, you will have a connection with them right. and have that intimate relationship to where I they kind of know connection. you. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of them are looking at the chart while they're reading your name. Uh, Tamika. Exactly. Hey, don't right, remember like, like, however long ago. Right, exactly. And a lot of times, um, well, it used to be the case that you had a family practitioner and you build that relationship and maybe you're, mother's mother mother went there and you had that some type of relationship but now I mean it's really not yeah, I, like I guess that I'm speaking for myself I had an interview yeah. I went to like a, a midwife practice it was it was very like they you know they would ask about my other children so it right was, it was very um, right. friendly but I will I will um correct myself the genetic marker for down syndrome is done between 10 and 13 weeks so still in the first trimester. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you could be deciding still within the first trimester on what you want to do. 
I mean, it could be a whole host of reasons and then you take that test and that's another reason. And for someone that just might be overwhelming. Um, it, it, can be a, it can be a lot of things. Maybe you already have a child with Down syndrome and you don't know if you have the capacity to take care of two children with mm-hmm. Down syndrome. Now, I mean, personal feelings aside and just talking about whether or not that's constitutional, I'm surprised that they let the Ohio statute stand because mm-hmm. I feel like so that's specific, not constitutional. Right? right. I feel <laughs> like that's not constitutional, but... I'm pretty sure there's going to be more challenges to this because I just don't, I just don't see how it has grounds to stand. When we talked so about it, facial discriminatory previously, like this is a perfect right. names the the the, the right yeah. But also, and so who, yeah, physicians would impose this on which patient demographics is also it, that consider, you right? know that's always the who, issue. Who, who's right. monitoring this? Right, like who's monitoring whether or not the physician um, did or did not perform said abortion, right? And mm-hmm. are physicians going to take, um, you know, enforce this more with different, you know, d- different racial right. ethnic groups, yeah. which, which yeah. could be a thing. Right. Like, I don't right. understand what would be the monitoring mechanism to ensure to even like, know implementation. That <laughs> yeah. So I think- Like, is all the genetic testing going to go into like a state database? Like, I'm not <laughs> understanding- well, um is that does it go to database i don't know i know like at the end no i know when when babies are born they do pick you and stuff like that and that Mm -hmm. goes to like a a state lab yeah i don't know about genetic testing i don't think it does but i mean if someone if one of the listeners if we're wrong on this send us an email (laughs) um but i don't think that so like you said portia there's no way to really to track this anyway what kind of oversight will you have right with something like this so then you know to both of you all's point about um you know still deciding at 10 weeks etc well that missouri on the flip side um said that they wanted to block abortions after 8 14 18 and 20 weeks of pregnancy um, and abortions performed solely because of a prenatal test resulting in um, indicating the potential presence of Down syndrome. Again, so another Down syndrome one. Uh, but N- Missouri also then added in the time frame here. Where, right, so it's like a conjunction. Yes, they wanted to block the abortions after these time frame. Um, and so a facility, they, you know, they brought the case because again, this house bill was going into effect and the facility was challenging the house bill. Um, and let's see, this was the court of appeals. The court of appeals held that um, the house bill can do so. The house bill can, um, can say that no abortion shall be performed or induced upon a woman at eight weeks gestational age or later, except in the cases of medical emergency and the Down syndrome provision does not con- is not considered a medical emergency. A more positive reproductive justice abortion case coming out of New York um, this one is more so a religious slash abortion. And, you know, we often see those, right, where religion and religious freedom and abortions also play a role in the conversation. So in this particular case, 
the federal district court dismissed claims brought by the owner of several anti-abortion pregnancy crisis centers that challenged a New York statute that prohibited employers from taking negative employment action against employees because of their reproductive health decisions, including using birth control or having an abortion. So there's a New York statute that pretty much says that or aimed at regulating employment decisions around your reproductive health. So let's say if you are employed, you know, by an agency or an organization, this New York, New York statute says that, you know, with your health insurance, if you're getting birth control or having an abortion, like they can't make any negative employment actions against you. They can't fire you because you've done that. And I guess New York had to put that statute in place for a reason, because that was happening in the past where some religious-based entities would terminate the female employees based on what they were receiving, whether it was birth control or abortions, et cetera. And so the, the district court dismissed the claims of the abortion crisis centers against taking this negative action because their reproductive health and their reproductive decisions are private and it is their business and it does not implicate, you know, moral standards or, you know, violate the First Amendment right to free speech or anything like that as these abortion, uh, anti-abortion centers were claiming. So what, why would my employer be, need to be all up in my reproductive system? And what reason do you have to want to control if I am getting a, a birth control or abortion pills? I do know with some of these religious um, employers, they have bylaws or they have a code of conduct that falls within what they believe. So essentially, I guess if you're a Catholic um, school and you have uh, some type of agreement with your teachers about what the code of conduct is based on your beliefs, which they don't believe in abortion. Well, some well, no, I think generally most don't believe in abortions or birth control, that because you teach in this religious institutions, you have to hold up the tenets of the religion, and essentially you have to follow that as well. So I'm guessing that's why they brought this, this case, but yeah, I mean, it's again, right to privacy. I don't see how that's really any of their business. I think they're reaching, like, okay, <laughs> you don't have to provide it. But if uh, your faculty chooses to, you know, get it from another resource, I don't see how that is of your concern or you should have the right to know that information, thus being able to do something about it or to retaliate. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Agree with that also. And mm -hmm. so the company say they expect, you know, to your point, they expect the its employees, regardless of their sexual orientation, to observe sexual abstinence outside of marriage. Um, right. And therefore, they only they hire only employees, interns or volunteers who adhere to their mission and policy of opposition to um, abortion and sexual relationships outside of marriage, which typically involve the use of contraception that can have abortification effects. So Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, they, they had a contract with the Catholic Social Services um, for the provision of foster care services. And so city of Philadelphia has contracts with many agencies, um, but CSS was one of them as well. Um, and CSS didn't want to certify same-sex couples as foster parents 
And the court was like, oh, no, you're not. Um, because that is, again, a violation of the First Amendment. And so should same-sex couples be able to be certified as foster parents? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think for this case, it's just a matter of... Um, for, you know, for the Catholic social services, it's like, if you're going to contract with a city, right, essentially a government entity, you have to expect to play by their rules, right? So I don't understand why you would expect that you can prohibit same-sex couples from fostering um, children. So I, I guess I'm... I, I'm a little confused on that front that they thought that they were going to be able to circumvent and you're con- you have a contract with the city of Philadelphia. They circumvented it though. Oh, they did. Oh, so they upheld yeah, the decision. The Supreme Court said that the city of Philadelphia violated their first amendment rights by excluding them from being able to participate in the foster care program. Yeah, so they didn't have a contract. Really? So the city of Philadelphia did not want to give them a contract right. because they were. Oh, I thought they had to... the contract. No. Got it. Got yeah. It, got it. Got it. They got didn't it. want to. And so, yeah, I mean, to go back to wow. kind of like the other case, I'm not, well, first of all, I'm not surprised again, the makeup of the Supreme Court, not surprised <laughs> that, this was, <laughs> that this was the ruling. That's first, because, you know, the Supreme Court um, makeup is very big on religious freedom and religious rights. Um, so that's one. Two, yeah, I mean, I would think as, but I mean, you still made a valid part, um, point, yes, Portia, you did, that, Portia. This is discriminatory. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That you can expect a city or a government to um, fund an organization yes. that's going to be yeah, that is That is intentionally right. being discriminatory. Right. So I can what would be the difference that said like we're not gonna let, you know, black people people or Hispanic exactly exactly. And look like with all of these cases, it's like when the Supreme Court rules, you're like, wait, oh, so you went along with that? You 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 went along with that. And yes, the Supreme Court said that Philly was violating their first amendment right by excluding them because they should be able to say that they don't wanna um certified same-sex couples because it's their first amendment right to be able to refuse to certify a first amendment excuse me to it's their first amendment right to be able to refuse to certify same-sex couples Mm -hmm. and all of the justices agreed right so i mean it is their first amendment right but then to receive funding from a government yeah that's the issue that's the problem yes that's the problem problem. yeah that that's where that's where the rubber meets the road for me i think if they if they weren't affiliated with a government entity then you could say okay fine i guess they have a right it's discriminatory yes and if they want to claim you know for religious reasons this is what believe but you're you're being funded by the city yeah like if you were doing private adoptions people paying their own money cool do what you want to do but this is a public service that's right i just feel like this supreme court they just ruling they're just throwing out (laughs) (laughs) forget president forget this forget that i mean but we just we just don't know i mean i'm really looking forward to hearing some of these rulings on the abortion cases that yeah. we expect to come out later on in, in the year, possibly, and some other cases too that um, 
yeah, that, that makes back to come out because it's just, the Supreme Court has been interesting. It's been, it's their rulings be, have been interesting. It's going to be exciting fall. They, they are back in session in October and I can't wait to see what is on the docket. Thanks for listening to the Policy Memo Podcast. To keep up with us, follow us on Instagram at the policy memo underscore podcast and on Twitter at policy memo pod for questions and suggestions, email us at policy memo at gmail.com.